The split verdict of the Connecticut jury reveals the challenges of policing fraud in the market. The jury convicted one former Nomura bond trader of conspiring to lie to clients about mortgage bond prices, but cleared another of all charges while clearing a third trader of all but the conspiracy charge, which jurors could not decide on. Defense attorneys have argued that bond trading takes place between sophisticated professionals who can't be fooled by bluffing or puffing. My guests are John Coffey, a professor at Columbia Law School, and Robert Hockett, a professor at Cornell University Law School. Jack, the jury acquitted the traders or deadlocked on everything but the conspiracy charges. They found Michael Grammans guilty of conspiracy, Tyler Peters not guilty, and they deadlocked on conspiracy as far as Rod Shapiro. What does that show? Well, let's just underline how severe a defeat this was in reality for the government. There were 27 counts. They got a conviction on one of those 27. Three, as you said, were hung, and 23 were acquittals. Moreover, this case follows an earlier Connecticut case in January involving Jesse Litvak, who was also charged with 10 counts of very similar kind of misconduct. And there the jury acquitted on nine, convicted on one. So it looks like the government's having a great deal of difficulty convincing the jury that there's something truly culpable here. Uh, and I think the fact that they convicted Michael Grammons uh, may be explained by his being the only defendant where they had a tape recording of him instructing others on how to lie to the clients. That evidence really hit the jury, whereas every other case, the witnesses testifying for the government were cross-examined, and they had to admit they had done the same thing and looked equally bad. All that, I think, left the jury pretty confused. Bob, what's your take on this mixed jury verdict? Well, of course, it it very much matches uh, Jack's. Uh, I think the the main thing to note is that it remains difficult uh, to to secure a conviction in a securities fraud case of this kind on not only the materiality uh, uh, sort of portion of the charge, uh, but also on the intent uh, portion of the charge. Uh, I think it's not it's not without significance that the uh, count that was easiest to secure a conviction uh, on was that that involved the smokiest of all possible smoking guns. And, Jack, does this show that the jury didn't buy the theory that the puffing and lying by bond traders is fraud or that the prosecutors just didn't give the jury enough evidence? Well, we'd have to interview the jurors to really answer that. But do recall that in a securities fraud case, you have to prove not simply that the defendant broke a legal rule. You have to prove that he willfully did so, that it was his deliberate intent to violate the law. And that may have looked grayer, particularly in the case of the junior employees who looked like they were just taking instructions from their superiors. So the willfulness problem here, it may have been the biggest obstacle because one defendant did look like he'd willfully done this and they did convict him on at least one count. But uh, it does look like the government has difficulty explaining why this behavior is truly criminal when the defendants keep saying everybody was doing it. Well, Bob, even after they, the defense attorneys also got one of the alleged victims, Putnam Investments portfolio manager Zachary Harrison, to admit under cross-examination that he had lied during negotiations, and he wasn't charged with anything. So might the jury have been thinking, well, where's the crime here? Uh, I, I suppose that's, that's, that's possible. I mean, the, the, the trouble, I think, with figuring out exactly what was prompting the jury's decision 
much evidence uh, going in so many different directions. Uh, and, of course, it's also a relatively complex charge that was brought, or I should say the charges brought against the defense were themselves relatively complex as well. And so it's actually quite difficult to figure out exactly what would have mattered most uh, to the jurors. Um, maybe one other point to make in this connection is that there is, in a sense, a kind of an underlying link between the intention uh, element of the offense uh, on the one hand and the materiality part of the offense on the other. And that is uh, as follows. If somebody believes that the person to whom one is selling something is taking what he is saying with a grain of salt anyway, then it's all the more difficult, right, to show that the person actually intended to defraud the person because if the person actually thinks that the counterparty is, in fact, taking what he says with a grain of salt, then he, it's harder to show that he's actually thinking himself to be committing a fraud. Jack, the defendants did not take the stand. They didn't even present any evidence. And I wonder if some of them are reconsidering that at this point. But does the split verdict show that that didn't make any difference, or can't we really read anything into that? Of course, it's the normal position of white-collar defense counsel to resist having their defendant take the stand because you could easily get a perjury conviction coming out of that if you deny guilt and the court thinks you were lying about that. Uh, so it's it's the normal case to attack the witnesses rather than to try to put the defendant on the stand to tell his side of the story. All in all, the significance of this is the government has won at best a very weak Pyrrhic victory, and I think it may deter the Department of Justice from bringing similar cases it has in the past. Bob, might it deter the Department of Justice from retrying the two defendants on the deadlock counts? That's a tough call. Um, I, I, I mean, it, it might almost be a, a kind of moot point at this point, right? Because I, I have a funny feeling that the Justice Department uh, during the Trump years is going to be a little bit less zealous uh, about prosecutions of this kind in any event. Um, on the other hand, you know, where things different, right? Let's assume that this, we were still, you know, in the middle of the Obama era. Um, would this deter future prosecutions? I tend to think not, actually. I tend to think that they're going to sort of keep at uh, that they would keep at it. Uh, in hopes of uh, making a point and, and at least sort of frightening market participants uh, with the possibility of prosecution uh, and thereby frighten them into uh, maybe making uh, puffery a little bit less uh, common a practice or less sort of central to their uh, uh, common practices today. Jack, have these cases, cases, excuse me, have these cases, including the Litvak case that you were talking about and some of the pleas, been a wake-up call for traders who believed once that they could do anything to sell a bond? Oh, I think it has. I think it has them very concerned. The problem is they may just be hiding their behavior better. Some of them are now using encrypted codes that the government can't crack. Some of them are doing face-to-face -face conversations. Uh, I think it has affected the industry because these are intelligent people, and they have been surprised to find out that the government has been studying them and tape recording them, and they know they are generally susceptible to such tape recording. By the way, I think what's likely to happen here is that the government will give them something like a deferred prosecution agreement because the government usually, when there's been a mistrial, does offer reduced charges. And here, reduced charges would likely be something like a deferred prosecution agreement for the two who were not convicted. Bob, do you believe that the scrutiny by the government has pushed questionable sales tactics farther into the shadows rather than making people change the way that they do business? 
Well, I think I think it certainly raised an incentive, of course, for people to push more of what they do in the shadows. Um, but I don't know that that's actually a, a, a problem uh, as such. I mean, for, for two reasons, right? Uh, the first is uh, the shadow kinds of communications are themselves problematic as far as the law is concerned. Uh, and so, there are, you know, in a sense, what you're doing is pushing people into committing another kind of offense if you pursue them to doing that. And that's, of course, going to render them vulnerable uh, to charges along those lines or just sort of actions brought uh, that are predicated on those behaviors. Uh, the second point, I think, is it's very often said, right, that you shouldn't regulate this or that because then you'll push this or that into some sort of realm where it's harder to regulate it. But that's a bit like, uh, see, to me that sounds a bit like saying, you know, you shouldn't prosecute any crime at all because otherwise people will become more secretive uh, in committing their crimes. I mean, that's no, that's no real answer. Right? It's, not, it's not a good reason not to prosecute something if it ought otherwise to be prosecuted. What it's a good reason to do is to make sure that you uh, actually beef up your enforcement in these uh, sort of shadow realms as well, if that's where uh, the behavior moves uh, after it's kind of uh, uh, pushed out of uh, a more uh, sort of legitimate or well-lit space. Jack, market analysts say because of this change in traders in the way they're doing business, whether they're cleaning up their act or doing it um, more surreptitiously, that liquidity has been reduced. Do you see that? I really don't. I think that the bond markets are robust. There's tremendous demand. I believe we should have stronger enforcement, but I have to say it's easier said than done. It is very difficult to interfere with traders who are going to move off the normal venues and to non-tape recorded settings. I think we'll deter some people and we'll cause others to go underground. Uh, I still believe we should have stronger enforcement, but I have to say these kinds of defeats are going to chill the government. Young U.S. attorneys do not like to effectively lose cases, and I think the government may go back to things that are easier to prosecute, like insider trading, where they have a much better track record. Bob, do you believe that it's clear to traders, to bond traders, what exactly fraud is, whether an omission can have the same effect as a misrepresentation, for example? Yeah. I think it's been uh, somewhat unclear, actually, in recent years. And, and, and one way of interpreting uh, what the government's been doing in these cases is actually to try to impose a bit of clarity, right? I mean, a line is fairly difficult to draw between exaggeration or puffery on the one hand and just outright lying on the other. So that leaves things kind of gray, and that's actually one reason that this case was kind of gray and why I suspect it is the case that some of the uh, charges were sort of uh, uh, easier for the uh, juries to, to find sort of convincing than, than others. But one way to deal with that kind of problem is precisely uh, to sort of reimpose certain bright-line rules, uh, such as the rule simply not to lie, right? If you actually, if there's a nice cut-and-dried answer to how much you pay for a particular security that you're not now trying to sell, um, it's not that difficult to understand, right, all right, don't tell people that you paid a different price than you actually paid, right? It's very easy, I think, to impose a bright line with respect to that kind of uh, uh, talk, that kind of communication. Something in the way of bright line borderlines here, uh, at least with respect to these questions where it's easy enough to impose those kinds of lines. And that will actually then clarify the beginning of fraud, I suspect, uh, to market participants uh, on both sides of trades. Jack, how is the SEC proceeding in this area? In tandem with the federal uh, prosecutors or separately? Oh, yes. They, they very much act in tandem. 
But there's one big difference. The SEC brings about 80% of their enforcement cases in front of administrative law judges in in-house proceedings. That means there's no jury, and the administrative law judge is someone who's a specialist in securities law. It's much easier to convince that kind of judge than a somewhat innocent jury that doesn't really know what's going on. And I think we'll see some of these cases move back to civil SEC enforcement in administrative law proceedings. Bob, if you could explain about the bond market and why for so long it has been more difficult to deal with, and the government has sort of left it alone till about four years ago, the actions of bond traders, and then decided to crack down. Okay, so... We've lost Bob for a few minutes. Jack, can you talk a little bit about the, the bond the bond business and why there was this crackdown started about four and a half years ago on bond traders' actions when they had basically been dealing in this level where they said that they were dealing in sophisticated transactions and they didn't have to behave in the same way that other people did, other business people did, other traders the bond market has always been very opaque. You're not trading against the backdrop of a constant stream of prices going across one market. There's possibility that different prices are occurring at the same time between different traders. And because it's much more opaque, there was more room for people to engage in little white lies. Uh, a trader would tell the other side, I can't sell at that price because that's less than I paid for it. I don't want to report a loss. And the other side would say, all right, I'll give you an eighth of a point more so we don't have have to do that. Uh, those little white lies were the culture of trading, and I think the government, after the financial crisis, decided they were no longer going to accept this cultural story of little white lies, and they found some pretty egregious cases where public investors were regularly uh, hurt, injured by um, phony trading data. Welcome back. Bob, I understand you're back on the phone. We lost you for a moment there. Let's talk a little bit about Jesse Litvak, who whenever you hear about bond cases, you hear about Jesse Litvak because he was tried twice and found guilty twice. So let's talk a little bit about that case and what it sort of established. Yeah. So really, this was this is sort of the the font uh, of all of the cases that we've been talking about along these lines lately, right? I mean, this was the first sort of mark of a sea change so that the government uh, was no longer going to treat uh, little white lies, as, as Jack was calling them, or even larger white lies, uh, as if they were sort of innocent, right? This was the first sort of signal that the government was going to get serious uh, about at least ensuring that people don't affirmatively mislead or affirmatively lie uh, uh, to to those to their counterparties or to others. In the markets. I mean, one of the things to sort of keep in mind here is, you know, even at common law, outright lying was uh, was a problem. I was would, would, would constitute fraud. And one of the innovations made by the securities laws was to sort of add to sort of traditional commissive fraud a category of omissive fraud. And that's the sense in which the securities laws and securities regulation can be viewed as sort of having pushed a kind of envelope. But sort of ironic, I think, about all of these uh, post-litback cases, including the litback case itself, actually, uh, is that these were cases of, of actual commissive fraud. Uh, and the thought that, that these would have been controversial or that it would be thought to be sort of odd that these would be prosecuted, I think is itself quite odd. It sort of tells us something about where we've come as a sort of 
uh, financial culture. Uh, and, and, and I think as, as Jack was suggesting, as I was suggesting earlier, I mean, one way of viewing what the government's been doing of late is, is saying, okay, look, let's get back at least to a set of standards pursuant to which you can't just sort of outright lie. Uh, to your counterparties uh, and, and, and hope to sort of get away with it by saying, well, everybody discounts what I say anyway because it's sort of expected that we lie here. That's just not going to cut it any longer. Jack, do you see more plea deals or less plea deals because we see some people getting off? As you said, this wasn't a roaring victory for the government, to, to put it mildly. Well, the government, of course, can point to the fact that one trader was convicted, and that will destroy his career. He'll never be a trader ever again. It's only one count out of 27, but they do have an effect, a body, on which they can hinge a little bit of general deterrence. Uh, I do think, however, we're going to see the government push more of these cases into administrative proceedings where they avoid the difficulties of juries and have an administrative law judge make the decision. Bob, is it actually more fitting for these kinds of cases to be um, SEC cases with civil penalties rather than criminal cases? I mean, this is also the talk of about insider trading as well a lot. You know, is it is it really criminal or should it more, more be civil? Right. Well, I, you know, I, I tend to think that in, it, that if it, in these kinds of cases, it makes sense for the greater part of them to be regulatory offenses or for the SEC to be cases. But it's very helpful for, you know, some some smallish fraction uh, of such cases, I think, to be prosecuted as criminal offenses because that really sends the signal much more dramatically, right? And as you know, one of the principal criticisms that's been uh, sort of leveled against regulators or against the, sort of the general governmental response uh, to uh, financial fraud and financial misdeeds uh, in the wake of the, of, the, of the crash of 2008 has been precisely the fact that there's been so little in the way of criminal prosecution done and so much more in the way of um, uh, regulatory settlements uh, and the like. Uh, and, and, and the reason for that criticism, I think, is precisely because people sort of understand that even one or two criminal cases uh, can carry a great deal of sort of symbolic value and in that sense exercise a great deal of deterrent effects, uh, uh, even if uh, the, the great bulk of cases are, are brought by the regulators rather than prosecutors. Jack, insider trading was Preet Bharara's domain, let's say. He became famous as a sheriff of Wall Street for prosecuting insider trading. Have the bond cases centered more in Connecticut? Jack? SEC chairmen have gone out and lobbied U.S. attorneys to bring more criminal cases. But generally, federal criminal prosecutors want a very clear-cut case with much stronger evidence, with a real witness, with a real victim. And that's why there's been very few of these cases, insider trading or bond trading, brought outside of one or two jurisdictions, most notably the Southern District of New York, which likes to bring these cases and has gotten very experienced and very good at them. And it's also possible that New York juries are a little bit more skeptical of investment bankers and brokers and traders. Uh, but getting criminal enforcement brought outside of the Northeast is really quite rare. And I think that's still an area where the SEC and the government has got to lobby and proselytize all U.S. attorneys that they need to look at white-collar crime more than just street crime. And, and uh, Bob, what's, what's your answer to that? 
I'm sorry. If you remember the question, I don't even know if you remember. Whether whether it seems as if there there is more of a focus, there wasn't as much of a focus in in Manhattan on on this on bond trading. It was more you know insider trading, and it was all about insider trading that really brought Preet Bharara into the spotlight. Right, right. Yeah, so, I mean, so, so part of it, of course, is the fact that the, the way the bond trading, uh, uh, trade goes is it, it's not centered as, 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 as much in Manhattan as a lot of other securities trading uh, is, and that's probably part of the, the, the reason. I mean, and a lot of it, in fact, does occur right out of Connecticut. So it sort of makes sense, I suppose, uh, right, that there would be more focus on it there than in New York. So where do you see the investigations going now, Jack? Do you see them... Even even more investigations as far as some of the things that traders may be doing now to try to hide what they're doing. For example, you talked about using encrypted messaging apps or personal cell phones. So do you see the SEC or the federal prosecutors trying to look into that, which seems like it's difficult? Well, they have. In the recent prosecution of the Wall Street gambler, there could be of the Las Vegas gambler, Mr. Walters, uh, he used encrypted phones, and that sounded very, very suspicious to the jury. Um, I think we do have uh, Southern District prosecutors have become very adept. They know how to bring certain kinds of criminal prosecutions. The SEC has well-known priorities. They advertise what their priorities are. One of their largest priorities, which is where I think future criminal cases will come from, is the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. They are very eager to find people paying foreign bribes on behalf of a U.S. company or a foreign company that's trying to bribe to obtain business. And that, I think, will be the source of quite a few future criminal prosecutions. So will money laundering. Those are somewhat easier cases to bring. They don't get you involved with what it means when you make a particular cryptic comment to another in a quick phone conversation. They look to follow the money, and you see hundreds of thousands of dollars moving, and the jury understands that that's money laundering. Bob, when you teach your students, uh, is is bond is or bond trading is that is that an area that they're very interested in, or do they uh, go more towards uh, uh, securities and and insider trading? Well, I mean, my students are, are quite open-minded. It seems about what kind of uh, financial practice they're going to, going to go into. But uh, of course, maybe right now, fintech is very, it's very hot. Uh, hedge funds, private equity are very hot as well. It doesn't seem to be a, a great deal of interest uh, in bond trading as such. But I think a part of that is because um, you know the students at, at that stage uh, are not really fully aware of all of the differences, the, the sort of finer distinctions about what the life of a bond trader looks like on the one hand, and the, the, the life of a securities trader or securities underwriter looks like on the other hand. They do know, however, that there's something kind of uh, vaguely sexy sounding or a, a sort of exciting and futuristic sounding about things like fintech and startup law and, uh, uh, and again, uh, private equity operations. Um, cases like this, I don't know, perhaps they'll make bond trading look a little bit more interesting to students, at least in the sense that they're Sort of thing. It's become a public uh, topic again in a certain sense that it hadn't been for a while. But but I have a funny feeling that the future, as far as uh, again the, the sort of incoming cohort of students is concerned, uh, is still going to be with uh, again the fintech and private equity and the startup uh, type stuff for a while now. Well, I want to thank you both for being on Bloomberg Law. That's Robert Hawkins, he's a professor at Cornell University Law School, and John Coffey, professor at Columbia Law School, and two of our favorite guests here on Bloomberg Law. Thank you both for being here.